first draft of history suggests that Britain's response to the pandemic has not been a glorious success. And whose fault is that? The Prime Minister said, who's in charge of this plan? The Cabinet Secretary replied, you are Prime Minister. After that, it became fairly apparent that those people around the Prime Minister not only had knives out, but they were prepared to sort of wield those knives in public. For some years, political people now at the top of government have thought the British state is a bit rubbish. Now, with the recent sacking of the country's top civil servant, they seem to have decided that this is the time to turn a crisis into an opportunity. Dominic Cummings is the ideas man. They realised that Britain was going to be changed forever by the pandemic and that as well as downsides, there were upsides. They were going to use coronavirus to fulfil their aim of rebuilding the state. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, Dominic Cummings versus the civil service. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. In late February, people in Whitehall and Westminster realised that they might have the mother of crises on their hands. Four more cases of coronavirus have been reported in England, bringing the total number in the UK to eight. A ninth person has tested positive. Mr Speaker, as of this morning, 13 people in the UK have tested positive. We expect more cases here. This morning, Europe on edge. In Spain, the death toll from the coronavirus has increased dramatically. Italy sees the number of people infected soar. The number of cases in that country has risen to 219 very quickly. That's what's really worrying is how quickly this has exploded. We are not advising as a blanket policy that schools should be closing based on people having come back from Italy. We have a clear four-part plan to respond to the outbreak of this disease. Contain, delay, research and mitigate. I'm Oliver Wright. I'm policy editor at The Times. And what does policy editor do? It covers many sins. The main thing I've been doing is looking at both the civil service and at Brexit and the kind of big issues that are both politics but also have sort of other elements to them as well. That's quite a quite a bit of waterfront there. <laughs> it is. And obviously, you know, now all of us have been doing a lot of work on coronavirus and the way in which this government has responded to that. Oliver, let's start with the pandemic. Was there a moment as the pandemic developed when the government decided, look, 
we're being blamed for everything going wrong, but actually it's not our fault, it's the civil service <laughs> and the people who are advising us. I think there were several moments, and they all solidified a view which was probably there before the pandemic even began. So if you go right back to late February, early March, that was when we saw what was happening in Italy, we saw what was beginning to happen in Spain, and the government really began to realise that this is something that they could be dealing with as well at that time. They came into office with the assumption that the plans were ready, that everyone knew what they were doing, that we were told that we had the best plans in the world, really, for this kind of event. So the first thing that they did was say, well, we need to review the plan, we need to go through all the elements of it. What are we expected to do and at what stage? What they realised was that the plan that had been prepared was a plan for pandemic flu. Now, while pandemic flu does share some characteristics with something like COVID, it is by no means exactly the same thing. The plan that they were presented with wasn't really quite the plan that was necessary for the type of thing that they were facing. So that was the beginning. Then you move forward to just before lockdown. And I think the politicians felt quite exposed in terms of the advice that they were getting from civil servants about what to lock down and when. The Monday when they decided that they were going to lock down, it was really very unclear right up until that point just how much the lockdown would affect everyone. For example, they were still talking within the couple of days before whether they just locked down London or whether they had to go further than that. And in the end, it was one particular cabinet minister who turned to Boris Johnson and said, you shut the whole thing down and you shut it down now. But Boris Johnson was not convinced. And then you move a little bit further on into late March, early April. And that's the point when really you're seeing hospital numbers go up. You're seeing what we got terribly used to, those sort of press conferences and the spiralling numbers of deaths. Upon medical advice, I was tested and that test has been positive. Chris Whitty, chief medical officer, has tweeted this. Uh, after experiencing symptoms compatible with COVID-19 last night, in line with the guidance, I will be self-isolating at uh, home for the next seven days. During the course of this afternoon, the Prime Minister's condition worsened and on the advice of the medical team, who's moved in to a critical care unit. But imagine you were in Downing Street at this stage. That is the point at which people are starting to get ill themselves from coronavirus. The civil service has effectively all been told to work from home. And you've got the political advisers in that great Georgian house rattling around without any of their civil service support, (laughs) feeling very, very exposed. And I think if you wanted one key moment, that was it. It was when people started getting ill, the civil service had gone home, and you had a Downing Street that was struggling to run the country. And I remember vividly one aide to Boris Johnson saying to me after the event, he said, you know, those days, he said, yeah, I thought I was running the country at one stage. And he didn't say that with any pride. (laughs) They felt that Yeah, really, they'd been left to it. They didn't have the information either. They didn't at the beginning know how many people were being admitted to each hospital on each day. They didn't have the sort of key bits of management information, which were really, really important in dealing with the pandemic. Because unless you know where people are going into hospital, where your pressure points are, you can't really make sure that you've got the right number of intensive care beds and all the rest of it. So there were a series of things over that particular period. But I'd say the last bit was probably the most important. 
We will have a test track and trace operation uh, that will be world beating. I am now setting the goal of 100,000 tests per day. Today I wanted to outline the next step, a new NHS app for contact tracing. So as it stands, our app won't work. Now, in each case, they then had to come before press conferences and explain why it was that test and trace wasn't happening in the way they'd said it would, the way in which PPE wasn't getting to the places where Mm -hmm. they promised it would. There were the incredible promises on testing, which were very problematic. Was it their inclination, do you think, to turn around and say, well, if we'd been better advised and if we'd had better organisation, then some of these disasters wouldn't have happened to us? I think it was certainly what they were thinking. But remember, this is a government that has focused grouped everything to oblivion. And they realise that members of the public don't see the distinction between civil servants and politicians. You know, Matt Hancock or whoever it is standing up there saying, well, if only I'd been told this by so-and-so, that's not going to wash. People are still going to blame Matt Hancock. You might as well save your breath. But it doesn't mean that privately behind the scenes that wasn't what they were thinking. But weren't some of the uh, advisers briefing that? Yes, quietly. They were still reasonably careful, but certainly at that point there was a huge frustration with particularly Public Health England. Public Health England had been the the whipping boy of this particular crisis, and to an extent that's fair, but to another extent it's not. I mean, one of the great ironies is that the political people in Downing Street, one of their complaints was that the NHS was too independent. They didn't really have the levers of control over it because it was a previous Tory government that had reformed the NHS. One of the things that people were saying at certain stages, well, you know, COVID has just shown that politicians need to be in control of the NHS, that the NHS was too independent. But what they failed to realise was that the one bit they were in control of was Public Health England. And the one bit that performed worse than anyone else was Public Health England. So that was the bit they could have done something about, whereas actually the NHS by and large, didn't do too bad a job. Now, according to reports, there was a moment in June when Dominic Cummings, that famous top advisor to the Prime Minister, told staff that a hard rain, (laughs) Bob Dylan's term, was going to fall on Whitehall. Can you tell me a bit about that? It's, it's, I hate to say it, but it is one of those apocryphal myths. He never (laughs) actually said it to advisers. Now, that is not the same thing as saying he didn't say it. I think it was actually a briefing to a journalist, but I don't think he actually said it to the advisers. I think it was briefed afterwards. But nevertheless, no one's complaining with a sentiment. Presumably, it was garnered from the impression that he'd given, suggesting that there were going to be consequences. Yes, and I don't think he would privately deny that. Hard rain is in sort of... Dominic Cummings likes a nice phrase, but what he's talking about is something which really was in the back of his mind since, well, before COVID, certainly, you know, the top of the civil service needs to change. So the pandemic is proving to the government and its top advisers what they'd actually thought about the civil service before the pandemic. Yes, Yes, it's evidence for the prosecution. <laughs> I think I think that's pretty much how everybody's taken the pandemic, really, <laughs> to prove whatever it was that they thought before. He was the first to give Boris Johnson a welcome to Downing Street, but has Sir Mark Sedwill outstayed his own? 
the UK's top civil servant who also advises Boris Johnson on national security matters is stepping down. One man goes, what does it all mean? Well, it will fuel this idea that Downing Street is determined to shake up Whitehall. Boris Johnson replied by hand, as Prime Minister, I have particularly appreciated your calm and shrewd advice. After serving for decades with great distinction and unflappable good humour, the suspicion is that another figure behind the scenes was less applauding of Sir Mark's work. Let's talk about what was seen by many people as the first big move in the business of major change, which was the sacking of this chap, Sir Mark Sedwill, and his replacement. Mm. Could you explain who Mark Sedwill is, what was the job that he was doing, and then we'll get on to his replacement? Yeah, so perhaps the easiest way of explaining who Sir Mark Sedwill is is to, to go back to that old, slightly lazy civil service analogy and say that he is Sir Humphrey. He is the most senior civil servant in the country. He is cabinet secretary, as it's called. He is the prime minister's most senior non-political advisor. And he is also the boss of 400,000 odd civil servants. Now, so Mark Sedwell had a curious position because he wasn't just that. He was also the Prime Minister's national security advisor. He was the person who would coordinate the intelligence agencies, the Home Office, the Foreign Office, all those people in government who had an interest in the security, both domestic and international, of the United Kingdom. So really, you've got a huge concentration of power within Whitehall in this one individual. That was the role that he had. So how was Sir Mark Sedwell sacked? Rather abruptly, he'd actually been in America the week before and arrived back. There was a meeting with the Prime Minister at which it was made clear to Sir Mark that Boris Johnson no longer had trust in him to carry on doing the job. Was Sir Mark surprised, do you think? I think he knew it was coming at some point, but I don't think he was aware of the timing. I think the timing was it came sooner than he expected. And this was dressed up in typical language. This is terribly mutual. We all agree it's the right time for Mark to move on. We're terribly grateful for Mark for everything he's done. Mark says, I think it's the right time. I've agreed with the Prime Minister. There's handwritten letters, a promise of a job in NATO in a few years' time. But make no mistake about it, he was made redundant. I seem to recall some rather hostile stories to Sedwell appearing during the course of the pandemic, which suggested that some of those close to number 10 were fed up with him during the coronavirus crisis. Yes, there was a particular one where a meeting at which both the Prime Minister and the Cabinet Secretary had been at, details of that meeting were briefed when they were looking at a plan to unlock the UK. And the Prime Minister had turned to Mark Sedwell and said, who's in charge of this plan? And Mark Sedwell had replied, you are Prime Minister. After that, it became fairly apparent that those people around the Prime Minister not only had knives out, but they were prepared to sort of wield those knives in public. And that set of comments was deliberately leaked. Now, it was deliberately leaked because it suggested that the civil service were not taking responsibility for the implementation of the plan and that they were sort of leaving it to the politicians yet again. Now, it's quite curious because that was their intention, but to the general public, it would be, well, of course you're in charge, Prime Minister, you are the Prime Minister. So it was an interesting leak. Yeah, interesting is quite a is quite a good word for it. It's actually <laughs> completely counterproductive, isn't it? I mean, one presumes that the briefing, actually, the off-the-record briefing to journalists, is for the benefit of other Conservatives, because the general public are bound to say that about the Prime Minister. Yes, exactly. And 
I'm suspicious of briefings to journalists having a set motivation because sometimes it's just these characters doing what they do, which is being nasty about people around <laughs> them. Um, and the journalist just writes it all down and there isn't, there isn't a clear strategy or, or tactics <laughs> to what they're doing. But, yeah, I mean, you know, they disliked him. They disliked his style. They disliked the way he treated them. He wasn't part of the team. And the group of advisors in Downing Street around Johnson, it is a team. And you're either on that team or you're not. How do they like to be treated, Oliver? It's not just about ideology, and there are people that are Remainers, who I know, who think the world of Dominic Cummings. They want loyalty, and to be fair to them, they also want competency. OK, so are loyalty and competency summed up in this figure, David Frost, who's taken over as the National Security Advisor? Uh, tell us a bit about him. And tonight, one change has already been made. David Frost will become the new National Security Advisor. David Frost. You might know that name. He's the UK's chief negotiator with the EU. So David Frost is another curious character. He appears to have had a series of quite glamorous jobs, the kind of jobs that you give to young foreign office diplomats who you think are going places. And the strange thing happens that in his mid-30s, his career stalls a bit. He has a number of postings abroad and he finally makes the ambassadorship in Copenhagen. So he's made uh, ambassador to Denmark. And I was told by very senior foreign office person, that if you got the ambassadorship to Copenhagen, you were championship material. You were never going to make the Premier <laughs> League. Uh, it's a wonderfully snobbish foreign office thing to say. But, you know, four or five different people in the foreign office said he was competent, but in the early jobs that were given to test him, he wasn't quite there. He couldn't hold a room. He wasn't quite charismatic enough. He was set out to be a mid-ranking diplomat rather than someone who was going to be the ambassador to Washington or the ambassador to Paris. And midway through, he appears to have decided, well, I've sort of had enough of this. And he left for a job which seems very odd to an outsider, which was chief executive of the Scottish Whiskey Association. Um, I'm sorry, how does that leap work? How does that leap work? Apparently it's very common. The Scottish Whiskey Association always looks for their chief executive for an ex-foreign office diplomat. They like someone who can go to New York, have a room full of the great and the good, and know how to showcase Britain and put on a good party. The only difference, they said, with David Frost was that he'd come to the post somewhat earlier in his career than others tended to do. Goodness, who knew, Oliver? Who I know. Knew? Anyway, he, he spends a couple of years at the Scottish Whiskey Association. He's also free at that point from civil service impartiality rules. And David Frost was seen as quite a unique thing, a diplomat who was a Eurosceptic, potentially even a Brexiteer. As a consequence, he got quite high-level access. He met with Boris Johnson on several occasions. His career then took off after the... 2016 election following the referendum when Boris was slightly unexpectedly made Foreign Secretary by Theresa May. The first person he thought of was his chum David Frost, who not only was a diplomat, but was also a Brexiteer diplomat, so he brought him in as a political advisor. When Boris successfully ran to the leadership, he was rewarded, brought in as his chief Brexit negotiator. He wasn't qualified in a typical civil service sense for the job, but nevertheless, he had worked in Brussels. He did understand the EU and he, more importantly, understood what Boris wanted to do. And he had sold a whiskey to the Americans. And he had sold whiskey to the Americans, yeah. So who else knows what he could sell to the Americans or indeed the EU? The surprising thing was that he was given the National Security Advisor job as well. That seems to me to be a thank you from Boris for what he's done, because really he hasn't had security-facing jobs, he doesn't know a great deal about it, and 
it's a strange move and one that is causing quite a lot of disquiet, not just in the Foreign Office, but also, I think, a bit within the intelligence agencies as well, because this is the individual who will assimilate all the information that's been passed off, assess it, judge it, and then give a one version of truth to the Prime Minister. And they're not entirely happy that the person doing that is a political appointment and someone they don't really trust anyway. Now, Boris Johnson's predecessor, Theresa May, wasn't very happy about this, was he? So let's just hear what she said in Parliament last month. I served on the National Security Council for nine years, six years as Home Secretary and three as Prime Minister. During that time, I listened to the expert, independent advice from National Security Advisers. On Saturday, my right honourable friend said, we must be able to promote those with proven expertise. Why then is the new National Security Advisor a political appointee with no proven expertise in national security? (laughs) (laughs) Take us through that one, Oliver. Well, politics is always about the personal. So you've got to remember that Mark Sedwell was also Permanent Secretary in the Home Office when Theresa May was Home Secretary before she became Prime Minister. And they had a very close relationship So Theresa May takes this personally. She feels that um, Mark Sedwell has been treated shabbily by Boris Johnson. That's the personal and the political is, well, what's the easiest way to hit the Prime Minister? Well, it's to go after the fact that he's appointed a political advisor as National Security Advisor. Prime Ministers tend not to attack their predecessors. There have been notable exceptions, but, you know, it's not something she will do lightly. So she's going after it in a way which she feels is the most palatable way to do it. But it is personal. Right. Who is now in the running for Cabinet Secretary, which is vacant? It's quite an open field. So the appointment of Cabinet Secretary is not entirely a free one for the Prime Minister because the only qualified candidate to be the next Cabinet Secretary is someone who has either been a Permanent Secretary in another department or is currently a serving Permanent Secretary in another department. And it also prevents the Prime Minister from appointing someone who has no experience of the civil service whatsoever, bringing in someone else from the outside. But my suspicion is that they will use this appointment to actually downgrade the job slightly. Not only does it not have the National Security Advisor role with it, but they are looking to dilute the power of the Cabinet Secretary or certainly spread it out more thinly, which in some senses would give them more influence across the machine rather than having a sort of separate power base. Now, part of me is slightly surprised that Dominic Cummings and Michael Gove haven't suggested that somebody like Elon Musk take up the job. We'll give it time. (laughs) Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. One of the things that we've been learning over time is the centrality of the old partnership of Dominic Cummings, now number 10, and Michael Gove. They did actually come up with a plan at the Department for Education, didn't they, when they were together under David Cameron? Yes. Yeah. Dominic Cummings's view of the civil service and the way in which it operates is many years old. And it was formed during that period in the coalition when he was working as Michael Gove's effective chief of staff. Cummings hasn't been in any other government department until he arrived in Downing Street with Boris Johnson last year. So for him, it's unfinished business and he's still sort of fighting the battles from mid-2012. So when they entered Whitehall, they had a very clear idea of what they wanted to achieve in the world of education. Now that was free schools, academies, those were probably the biggest eye-catching elements of their plan. They expected the civil service to say, how high minister, and to deliver the plan which they had worked out in opposition. Cummings was Gove's right-hand man. He was the person who was to drive it through with the civil service. And it was the frustrations that the two men felt in trying to implement their agenda that really set their views of Whitehall and how you achieve things. Cummings left the Department for Education... I'm, I'm, I'm happily uh, unemployed, at the, uh, very happily unemployed at the moment. So um, I've got lots of time for question and answers later on if people... I can... So it's 2014 and Dominic Cummings has just left his job as a special advisor working for Michael Gove. And he gives this speech to Think Tank, the Institute for Public Policy Research, railing against some of the people and institutions he thinks held him back. The people who are promoted tend to be people who protect the system and don't rock the boat. And it ruthlessly weeds out people who are dissenters, who are mavericks. What is the basic premise of Cummings' view about the civil service? He thinks that the civil service and indeed the entirety of the British establishment, not just the policy officials in Whitehall, are out of touch with the country. And he thinks this has got progressively worse in the years since the war. Everything pushes against a culture of responsibility and excellence. Time after time after time, I would be in the department and we'd be leading the news and you'd look at the TV screen here saying, latest Gove disaster, Gove botches X. And you'd look through the glass screen and you'd see the official responsible for it in the lift, pottering home at 3.30 in the afternoon. Doesn't care. Why not? Because failure is normal. It's not something to be avoided. Oliver, you've written that the Cabinet Office drew up a synopsis after Cummings arrived in Downing Street of all his blogs, about 20 pages of it, so that they could be informed about his thinking. What did it say? It summed up his views on officials, what worked and what didn't. It summed up his views on the way in which Downing Street itself, the physical space of Downing Street, is ill-suited to decision-making. If you look around it... How many of our best mathematicians, our best research scientists are represented at the top of decision-making in Westminster and Whitehall? The answer is approximately zero. 
it talked through his belief that there needed to be more scientists in government, which is a little ironic for an ancient history graduate such as himself. Westminster and Whitehall are dominated by arts graduates with very poor quantitative skills, little to no understanding of important scientific and technological issues. He's a fan of management techniques. Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, these kind of characters. All of these people can hire, fire, promote and train their teams. No minister has the power to do any of this in their government department. It was really the sort of, yeah, the life and times of Chairman Dom. Today, he's taking as his theme the privilege of public service. And it is my great pleasure to invite him to come here to give us the 2020 Ditchley Annual Lecture. Michael. Thank you so much, Jonathan. That was a typically generous introduction, and I'm uh, both touched and privileged. Now, let's fast forward to last month, and, and Michael Gove gives a speech quoting Gramsci. Writing in his prison notebooks 90 years ago, the Italian Marxist thinker Antonio Gramsci defined our times. The crisis consists precisely of the fact that the inherited is dying and the new cannot be born. As somebody who grew up in the British Communist Party, always nice to hear uh, the Italian <laughs> communists being quoted. Uh, it's the famous quote, the crisis consists precisely of the fact that the inherited is dying and the new cannot be born. In this interregnum, a great variety of morbid symptoms appear. Love that phrase, morbid symptoms. What is being conveyed in this about Michael Gove and presumably also Dominic Cummings' view of the moment? I think it's important to separate the two of them out. They have a lot of shared experiences, and particularly when it comes to things like the civil service, it was the same experience that shaped their views. But I think now there is a bit of a distinction. So when Michael Gove gave that speech, he didn't himself know that Sir Mark said, well, the following day was going to effectively be asked to stand down as cabinet secretary and I think he felt a bit of a chomp having given this speech which he deliberately showed to senior civil servants in advance of him giving it he really didn't want to give the impression that he was handing down the tablets of stone and there's quite a large chunk of it where he to a degree admits that he made mistakes in my time in politics I got many things wrong my first attempt as education secretary at a new history curriculum was deeply flawed. My cancellation of the uh, Brown government's Building Schools for the Future programme was a political fiasco. I don't think that Gove wants to be at war with the civil service. I think he wants them as his ally and he wants to reform from within, whereas Dominic is a bit more destructive. That's really interesting. And it takes us on to the next question, which is what you think they'll actually try to do. Now... I, like a lot of people who've been around for a bit, have seen various iterations of this over time. But always the argument is between a more US-style system of political appointments and the British style of having a civil service which is seen as being above and beyond the fray. Mm. In other words, when it comes to competence or loyalty, actually competence is very important, but loyalty is to the British polity, not just to the politicians who make up government. And so the worry always is that if you go towards the US style, actually you can end up Polish style, really, in which you gradually subvert those organisations which are supposed to be neutral. What do you think they're actually going to do? 
Dominic Cummings is not someone who instinctively wants to politicise the civil service. And I say that for one simple reason, that he hates most politicians as well. (laughs) He does not like the Conservative Party. He doesn't like Conservative MPs. He thinks most of them are utterly useless. He holds them in a similar degree of contempt to which he holds the civil service. So he's not up for politicising the civil service. He's up for changing the civil service so that the people at the top are more his kind of people. That's the plan. Whether it can be delivered or not, let's see. One of the things they say about great crises, Oliver, is they're also great opportunities. Do you think that the big reformers, people who really want to change the civil service in government, see the pandemic as offering an opportunity for change that they might not otherwise have been offered? I think they do. I think that's right. And I think that view didn't form immediately. I think they spent a long time in the midst of the crisis just trying to deal with it. But I think there was a sea change, probably in May, where they realised that, you know, Britain was going to be changed forever by the pandemic and that there were, as well as downsides, there were upsides. And I think it was all tied into the decision not to extend the Brexit transition period, that they were going to go it alone, whatever happened, and that they were going to use coronavirus to effectively fulfil their aim of rebuilding the state. And that's what they're going to do. The trouble is, there isn't much money to do it. been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, the Times policy editor, Oliver Wright. You can read more of Oliver's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer was James Shield, the executive producer is Leo Hornack, and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella, music by Breakmaster Cylinder and Ketzer. And if you enjoyed this episode, you might like Matt Chorley's show about all the latest political news on Times Radio. Tune in on DAB, on your smart speaker, or in the Times Radio app from 10am to 1pm every Monday to Friday. See you soon. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, And it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. 
a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.